Well, I would like to read to you uh, James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. James 5, verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so the title of our message tonight is Prayer and Healing, Part 2, following last week's message. Uh, Tonight, the book, the letter, the epistle, it's all the same thing. They really are letters. The letter of James to various churches that he's writing to, and they would, they would get these letters and they would pass them around, and maybe sometimes they would copy them, but they would be meant to be circulated among area churches. It takes us to two of the most controversial and debated verses in the New Testament, and our assignment tonight, notice I didn't say my assignment, our assignment tonight is to try and figure out what they mean. Well, here we go. I don't mean to brag, but... I 100% know what it means. Drum roll, please. It means exactly what God meant it to mean. Now, the problem is, what is that? And the problem is us figuring out. And I'm going to point out a few different things along the way that are always good to keep in the back of our minds. And when when well-studied... I'm not just talking about people who are making up stuff as they go along. Well, I think it means this, and I think it means that. I'm talking about well-studied. When well-studied followers of Jesus disagree, it should produce in us a humility, and it should produce in us a desire to dig deeper and to be willing to have our minds changed. Uh, Often... It helps us when we're studying these difficult passages to realize what they don't mean. What would seem impossible that the Bible writer is saying. And clearly, we start right off the bat with something we talked about last week. A lot of people use these verses for people who are dying. But clearly, this verse, these verses are for someone who is to be healed. It doesn't require... Confession to clergy, verse 16. We talked about some of this last week. says that we confess our sins to one another. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. Nor does this point to a healing service. Healing services or a tent revival healing services or something like that. This passage is clearly calling church leaders... In this case, they're referred to as the elders of the church. Not a healing ministry. Not a faith healer we invite into town for a service. But it is calling for a role of the sick person or those who represent the sick person. If they're so sick, they're not even conscious or they're they're unable to do what this passage tells us to do. And it relates to those people, the sick and the church leaders. Now, I am not, not convinced that people will always be healed if they have enough faith. Why? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. And it's certainly not what the Bible demonstrates. I will tell you this. 
a lot of people believe we have to have faith in our faith. But faith, this is a very important concept, faith is only as good as the object it is placed in. Let me give you an example. I can have faith that my car will get me home tonight. But if before I came into church today, I had four flat tires, a dead battery, my engine fell down to the floor, and, and two of my axles were broken, I can have all the faith in the world, but guess what? My car is not going to get me home. So faith is only good as the object it is placed in. The Bible teaches that faith is trusting in Jesus. You could say Yahweh in the Old Testament, but we're in a New Testament book. So faith is trusting in Jesus. I can get my faith all worked up. I can get all crazy. I, just, just nuts. I can have a ton of faith in my, in my faith. But that doesn't really mean anything. Because you can have a lot of faith in your faith and have almost no faith in Jesus. It's very easy, as we often say, to be an unbelieving believer. Plus, I think that one of the cruelest things that has now come down the pike, and it's become very popular in the past probably, oh, let me say 70 years or so, is telling people that they did not get healed because they did not have enough faith is completely cruel. It's so cruel. I'll just relate one story to you uh, that many of you may have heard of happened many years ago. I remember hearing about it, and, and it was on the news, and it was, it was really so very sad. It was a prominent faith healer. I don't, I don't want to call him out by name, so I'll make up a fake name. You okay with that? I'll make up a fake name. Let's say his name was uh, Henny Bin. Henny Bin. <laughs> and... Henny Bin was doing a faith healing rally down in Florida, and he said, touch your hand on the television, you'll be healed, and come to me, come down to the rally, these faith rallies we're doing this week, and bring your sick, and I will touch them and they will be healed. And a couple in Texas pulled their little baby out of the hospital and drove to Florida, and their little baby died. We actually had something like that, in a way, a little different here. Before we started our church, uh, what is now our cafe, there was another church that used to meet here. And they asked me to come speak to the church. And after the service, there was a woman and her husband came up to me, and they had a, a child that had a tremendous amount of, of difficulties. And she said she would not come to our church unless, our, unless I would guarantee that her child would be healed. And I said, I, I will be happy to regularly pray for your child. But that's not something I can guarantee. And I'm telling you, she was so angry with me. I understand she was hurt, but she had been told that 
that if somebody, some faith healer could come or if she had enough faith that that child could be healed. I think it's fair to say in the Gospels that Jesus' uh, healings come under a few different categories. In one sense, I would say virtually all of them demonstrate his great compassion. But about 50% of his healings, I would say, and these are general numbers, were a direct response to faith. People came to him, they believed he could do it, and he did it. 50% were uh, to produce faith in people or to strengthen faith in people. Again, I believe they were all wrought with compassion. As we'll see as we go along, sometimes sickness is due to sin, sometimes not. But Jesus healed all kinds of people. Sometimes multitudes would come to Jesus and he would heal everyone. But other times, Jesus would just heal one person in the crowd. On, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, I'm not convinced that this passage is limited to spiritual weakness or a faith crisis. Now, a lot of people teach that. Can I be honest with you for a second? Promise not to tell everybody. I actually wish that's what it meant. Because if that's what it meant, we'd have finished it up last week. We'd be zipping through this passage because that's a lot easier to teach that, it's, that it means spiritual weakness or a faith crisis than actual physical healing. Now, I do think that might be included in some sense, but it certainly appears to me that James is talking about physical healing. What's most important in these verses 13 through 18, which is this one little section here that we're taking a long time to go through, is the entire book of James is a call to prayer to people who are drifting and who need to come back to Jesus. And this is the call to prayer for, for various types of reasons. Before we start, you're like, we haven't started yet? No, we haven't really started yet. Before we start, let's take what we covered last week and really basically narrow it down. We talked about a lot of different views, but narrow it down to three views, basic views on healing. Number one, that God heals if you have enough faith and God heals through faith healers. So we'll call that, remember we said if you believe the, the spiritual gifts continue, continuationism. We'll call that extreme continuationism. Uh, the opposite extreme will go to uh, cessationism. You believe that the gifts have ceased. They've ceased to exist. Now, there are mild cessationists and there are extremes. So if you say absolutely no gifts, or we said basically it was limited to the, to the power gifts. You don't believe that there's healings. You don't believe in miracles. You don't believe in prophecy in terms of the future, although you would say that most cessationists would say, and we have to be fair, that there is the prophecy in the sense of when the Word of God is open and taught that it, it brings the Word of God to bear upon the people. And I think that's really most prophecy that we see. And they also would not believe in speaking in tongues 
and the interpretation of tongues. Those things are often referred to as the power gifts. And some cessationists don't want to believe in any gifts. Most cessationists would say, I just don't believe in the power gifts. If you look at it in 2 Corinthians, what strikes me as odd in that and why it makes it hard for me to take that position is those gifts are sort of in the middle of gifts that a lot of people think are still in operation today, like the gift of wisdom or something like that, a gift of helps. So for that makes it a little difficult for me. Um, the third point we'll put, it, we'll put as the middle position. And we called those last week uh, open but cautious. By the way, that would make you a continuationist if you take that position. You believe that, that you're open to gifts. You think they could still be continuing, but you are cautious. And, and so what, what, is, what is open but cautious? We said last week that sometimes people refer to them as a humorous way as charismatics with a seatbelt. So if you're open but cautious, then you probably could be characterized as a not an extreme charismatic, but a cautious charismatic. You're a continuationist. You believe these things are possible and may in fact still continue, but you have a very healthy skepticism. You, you really want to see a little bit more proof than someone just saying it. Now, I think that position, if you do take that position, will, will help you from being deceived by false teachers and by antichrists who the scripture tells us have the ability to work signs and wonders. Yet, the open but cautious position, and I think it's probably most people, I think probably more people way in the past were cessationists, but maybe in the last hundred plus years, that has been more of a, a position, of sort of a mild, charismatic type position. Um, if that's your position, you must acknowledge that James calls us to healing prayer and compassion. If you don't believe everybody's healed all the time, then, but, but that is possible, then you have, to, you have to believe in healing prayer, but you also have to believe in compassion on people that need to be healed and that are, in fact, not healed. So after telling us in verse 13, if we are suffering to pray, if we are cheerful to pray, verse 14 opens up, is anyone among you sick? Now, it is true that the word can mean weak. Some of your study Bibles, you know the Bibles with the answers on the bottom, that, that some of those study Bibles will tell you that that word means weak if they're coming from a cessationist type standpoint. But when that is the case in the New Testament, that word weak, usually or suffering, usually comes with what we call a qualifier. What is a qualifier? Um, for example, it will say someone is weak in faith. Someone is weak in conscience. Or, or simply, the context will point out to a weakness in faith. But primarily, in the Gospels, it means physically sick. So, sick means sick physically primarily in the gospels 
So let's continue with verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call. Now, isn't this interesting? A lot of people are waiting for the people, the leaders of the church to call them, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying that it's not. But it says it's the responsibility of the follower of, the G, of Jesus to make this call. So people are, are calling. Uh, a lot of people text. Most of you know with my neurological issues, it's not so easy for me to do texting, but emails. And, and so they're getting in touch with me for various reasons, and, and that's okay. That's okay. That's, that is the business of being a pastor. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, uh, I'm just getting too many interruptions. That's why I set aside mornings for study and prayer. Afternoons, I'm kind of open season. And people say, well, you know, I, I, I do that. But when I'm open season, there's a lot of interruptions. Well, <laughs> here's the deal. Interruptions is the business of the ministry. <laughs> that's just, that's just kind of the way it goes. And so... Uh, you know, and they're not even interruptions. They're God-ordained type interruptions. So, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural. You might say leaders, pastors. Words are very interchangeable. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let's stop right there for a second. The New Testament makes the assumption that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that you are part of a church. When you read throughout the, gospel, the, the, the New Testament letters, that is an assumption that you belong to a local church, that you are part of a body of believers, that you are under the authority and not in an oppressive state, but you are under the authority of the church. We are under the authority of the book. If you're new to us here, I've said to the sort church a hundred thousand times, I stand here at a pulpit. The Bible is in effect over the people. Not me. The Bible is over the people. That's what we mean by we are under the authority of the church. We are under the authority of the word of God. So the word of God makes the assumption that you are part of a local church, that you are a regular attendee, you're, you're using your gifts in the church, you're serving in the church, you're, you're donating to the church to continue the operations of the church, you're willing to help people in the church as things come up. So, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Who are the elders of the church? Well, we learn in the pastoral epistles of, of, of Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that they are a group of spiritually mature men. Does that mean that, that women can't pray for women? No. Does that mean that a woman can't pray for a, a, a pastor? No. I know a woman who prays for your pastor every single day and happens to be my wife. But there's other women in the church who are constantly telling me they're praying for me. And I'm like, don't stop. But when he talks about these elders, these pastors, these leaders, they are God-appointed and church-recognized leaders that are called to guide the spiritual development of the church. So let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Notice their call to pray over them. So presumably, it appears that this is a very sick 
bedridden person. So that doesn't mean you call tomorrow and say, hey, Pastor Jim, stub my toe. Can you come on over and pray over my toe? That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about. No, it's probably a very, very sick person. Notice it's not a call for faith healers. It's not a call for people who claim to have the gift of healing. And we talked about that last week, so you're going to have to go back and listen to that. The, the, the text actually says gifts, plural, of healings. Gifts from God, specific gifts that come at certain times. But these are, again, according to the pastoral epistles, men of the local church who have demonstrated spiritual maturity, have demonstrated a dedication to holiness and righteousness. Now, why is this important? Well, the end of verse 16 says this, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We'll talk about that next week because it's for all of us. But it says that the, the prayer of these particular type leaders, other people too, but in this case, these leaders, their prayer, God says, is a powerful, powerful thing. Now, we would expect these elders to have God-given wisdom and discernment from God in the situation. They're often referred to as overseers. Uh, what their main task is, the overseeing of the flock. Ephesians 4.12 says they are to be equipping people for works of ministry. Uh, that's why we often like it when we can take people with us on hospital visits so we can teach people to do hospital visits or we can teach people to do other type of ministry. Uh, they may also be well aware of, of the needs of the congregation and this particular individual, but maybe they're not. I often say, you know, usually in church, either everybody tells me or nobody tells me. So you know, it, it's... They may or may not know what's going on. Uh, it's interesting to me the way the first century church had, and if you don't believe me, you need to study the epistles, the letters of the apostles. You need to look in the maps in the back of your Bibles, the way that they went around. You look at the way Jesus went around. You need to read Acts chapter 6, the way they organized things. It's interesting to me the way the first century church had both organization and freedom. Why? Organization enhances freedom. Organization enhances freedom. The problem is many people in the church fight against organization because they feel led to do what they want to do. But friends, that can hinder the work of the ministry. Let's suppose that you have two people who are sick and you know, it's not one of these situations where they want to call the elders in for it, but they just want to have people come visit them. And, and people just decide, well, I'm going to go visit. I'm going to go visit. Maybe they have an appointment with a pastor to come visit. But after 16 people have visited them that day, they're exhausted. So that's where a little bit of organization is helpful. Or maybe they got 16 visitors and here's somebody else over here and they got no visitors. So these people are overwhelmed. The doctor and the nurses are yanking at my ear, going, you got to stop having so many people come visit them. 
And then sadly, I'm hearing from other people, I was sick and not one person visited me. And I'm like, I didn't even know. But you see, organization allows the church to dispatch people in their area of giftedness. And when people are dispatched all over the place in their area of giftedness, what does that do? That increases ministry. That increases effectiveness of a church. You can do a lot with a few people who are organized. And you can do very little with a lot of people who are disorganized. Let's use another example. Let's say meals. You know, sometimes people say, oh, they hear someone's sick. So they get enough meals for the next month. And there's four other people that are sick and they don't get any. Why? Because they didn't put it out on Facebook that they were sick and the other people don't even know. But a little bit of organization can change all of that. So we go on, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And notice what it says next. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, there's lots of controversy here until we remember and we admit that the emphasis on these six verses, 13 through 18, is on prayer because prayer is mentioned in every single verse. That makes, and the teachers love all this kind of stuff, that makes the anointing oil a secondary action to prayer. So prayer is the main verb, that's the main focus, and what comes secondary or subservient is the anointing with oil. You teachers, I know you want to say, it's a participle, Pastor Jim. I know, it's a participle. That, that's what it is. So here's the question. How do you do the anointing? Do you anoint and then pray? Do you pray and then anoint? How, do you... Do you do them both at the same time? Do you just put a lot of oil on? Do you just put a little bit of oil on? I think those questions are okay. And if you go along with someone, you can watch it and people do it differently. That's okay. Um, but I think that might be missing the point. The bigger question is, what is the significance of the oil? Now, a lot of people will quickly go to the Good Samaritan. And they'll say that he, you know, he anointed him with oil. And they, you know, in, in the ancient world, that oil was medicine. And so that will lead a lot of people to say that the elders are supposed to go with prayer and medicine. Here's my difficulty or my problem with that view is uh, anyone could bring many medicines over, not just oil, and they probably already did. Yet... Let us not, as we said last week, discount the combination of prayer and doctors as a means of God's grace. Uh, some Christian doctors have this expression. They'll say, I clean out and dress the wound, but God heals it. So really working together and praying that God will heal the person. So later on, we talked about this last week, the oil became sacramental. So there was special oil that was administered by a priest for removing people's sin before death. 
they're dying, they're on their deathbed, they, they go to have the last rites. But verse 15 talks about the person being healed. The person in this verse, and they got that from this verse, but the person in this verse is, is, is not dying. And they're certainly not being healed by oil, but through what's called the prayer of faith. Others would say that this oil is spiritual and symbolic. In the Old Testament, oil was often symbolic of the Holy Spirit. When, a lot of times when we think of anointing with oil, it's sort of a focus point. We're using the oil as an aid to faith. We're using the oil to stimulate faith, and dare I be so bold as to say, to impart grace. It's to really get the person to be focused because it's something different that the Lord is there. I mean, it seems to be a valid point that it's a great way to focus, but it's not the only way to get someone to focus, and it's not the only way that people can be healed. Or Jesus used spit <laughs> to heal people. He used mud to heal people. There's a guy who couldn't hear in the Gospels, and Jesus put his finger in his ears. So the key is not the oil. It's not the oil. Many healings were done without oil, which leads me to conclude that the oil here is symbolic. In the Old Testament, uh, oil was used to symbolically set people apart for the purposes of God. It was what we call, when we talk about being set apart, it was a, it was a call to consecration. It was, it was a very, very serious thing. In other words, to be consecrated, this person that we are anointing with oil is being set apart for God's special work, which may be healing, but also for God's special care. And as many times as I've read this passage, and I don't mean through the years, I have, I have spent so many hours with these two verses in the last two weeks. 20? 24? I mean, I've got to be in that range. I can't see any indication that this is supposed to stop when the apostles were all gone to heaven. This seems to me, James is saying, this is something the church is to continue to keep doing throughout all of the ages. I think that's why he said, didn't say, don't call, you know, call for an apostle. He didn't say that. Call for a church leader. If someone is severely ill, they should call for the elders or pastors of the church. More than one? Yes, I think that's perfectly fine. While appears the oil is symbolic of God's presence, let's not let the oil take us away from the main point, which is prayer that is tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the main point here, that prayer is tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit and that prayer, look at the very end of the verse. 
is in the name of the Lord. And I certainly believe that James is talking about the Lord Jesus. That expression, by saying you pray in the name of the Lord, reminds us that healing is done not by oil, not by a priest, not by a pastor, not by uh, an elder, not by a church leader, not by a church member, but that healing is done solely by the will of God and the power of God. That's the case. God is really, a lot of times we think of healing like that's people like, oh, that's really, that's just abnormal. No, 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 no. We are abnormal. God is bringing us back to being normal. That's what healing does. Sin brought sickness into the world and healing God is, is bringing us back to our, what he originally intended for us. So however, whether the Lord heals or not, this anointing is an important reminder to the sick that God sees and that God cares. If, if you will, this is a, this is a time when we're, we're saying to people, okay, this is a solemn moment. God has told us to do this and he will gather with us here and you know that he sees and you know that he cares. Well, what about people afflicted spiritually? What about people with weakening faith? What about people with depression? What about people with anxiety? What if you're burdened? What if you're, you're worn out from being sick? What if you're losing hope? Can you seek prayer? Absolutely. That's what we're going to talk about in the next section. That's why after Sunday services, we have people up front here waiting up here. Usually we'll try to have men and women up here. So if a woman wants to come up and, and talk about a personal thing with a woman, she can do that. If a, if a guy wants to come up and talk about a personal thing with a guy, he can do that. So we have them up front here uh, that people can pray. But sadly, not that many people come up front. You know where most of the people ask for prayer? They ask me out in the noisy hallway. And you, it's like you're trying to pray with people and other people are interrupting. No, no, no. We want you to come up front here where it's focused and it's just people bringing you to the throne of grace. You know, I, um, I think there has to be something that, that we you know, are keeping aware of. That, that God is, is truly seeing where we are. He truly knows. He, he truly cares. So let's look at James uh, 5.15. I want to read it twice. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And as if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Now let's go very slowly. Forget the oil. Okay, just forget it. The people that have been called in to pray, the church elders have been called in to pray. They're praying. And the prayer of faith, circle that in your Bibles. Almost everything in, in this section here hinges on what that means. And the prayer of faith will save. It is the word sozo. It will save the sick. Now, a lot of people read this and they go, oh, oh, it's going to save the sick. And we think of the word save as salvation. Well, it couldn't possibly mean that here. Because if it meant salvation, um, you would just be bringing people in every week. Hey, here's my rebellious teenager. Pray over him. Hey. Here's some oil, you're saved. Your next person. Here's some oil, you're saved. I mean, people would be running all over the place getting people. People would be bringing in their dogs. Please pray over my dog. I want to make sure my dog's in heaven. You know, people would be bringing in their cats, and I would have to go, I'm sorry, that could never happen. That's not going to happen. But no, that's not true. You know, I love my cat, sort of. But so... What does it mean? And the prayer of faith will save the sick, will sozo the sick. Another version says that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. What does that mean? And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let me give you a a big help in interpreting the Bible. Never, never give a word more meaning than the context allows or the context requires. Here, physical healing or physical restoration is the point. So to move to salvation or spiritual deliverance is what we call a bad hermeneutic. And what's a hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Remember, we've been saying this all along. James is an early New Testament letter. Maybe the earliest. His references are primarily the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus. Not the letters of Paul. Not the letters of Peter. Not the letters of John. And in the Gospel... Sozo is often the word used for physical healing. Even in English, the word saved can be used differently. Followers of Jesus will say this. The Lord saved me. What do we mean? We mean he eternally saved me. I put my trust in Jesus and he has forgiven my sins adopted me into his family, and has promised me eternal life in heaven, which is what we will be talking about this Sunday. But save can mean something else. Sometimes Pam will say to me, oh, I saved the leftovers from dinner, and you can, you can take them for lunch tomorrow. What do I say? I want fresh meals. I don't want leftovers. No, I don't say that. I say, great, I love leftovers. I love leftovers. So, so, 
the word here in the Bible can mean to be saved from eternal judgment for your sins. Probably more typical in the Pauline or the Paul letters. Or it can mean to save somebody temporarily from an illness that could be leading them to death. So they're not going to die because they're going to be saved from dying in that moment because they're going to be healed. Remember, many things in the ancient world that would, that would kill them, we just go to, you know, no problem. We you know, take a pill, go to the doctor, get whatever, and, and, and it's done. But so the prayer would save them from, phys- the physical healing would save them from, from dying. Now, the words for raise him up is also used quite often in the gospel of Jesus raising up bedridden people to physical health. Later on, after, after the Gospels, after James, it was more commonly used for the resurrection of all believers, although, and that all those who put their trust in Jesus will be healed. So here, I think, is the picture that James is painting for us. Someone is very sick. They call for the elders. The elders anoint them with oil and pray for healing. And it is the Lord that raises them up out of that bed. Maybe in that moment. Maybe in the weeks to come. Still we have to deal with the, 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 the big expression here, the prayer of faith. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Save them from what? Save them from dying. Heal them, essentially. Another version says, will make the sick person well. Now, here's the problem with this. It seems to be an unconditional promise, which makes it easy to say it's only for the apostolic age or that it's spiritually and not physically. Others point out the truth that, as we said, that God will ultimately heal all of us in the resurrection of believers. Yet none of those things explain why James says it's the follower of Jesus' responsibility to call for the church elders when they are very sick. What's that got to do with the resurrection from the dead and a resurrected body? That draws our eyes directly on this expression, the prayer of faith. J.B. Phillips calls it believing prayer. And once again, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? mean. It does not mean, I know some of you are not going to like this, it does not mean, it cannot mean you did not get healed because you did not have enough faith because the elders are the ones who are praying, not you. 
If you remain sick and try to live with the heavy burden that you have a useless faith, I'm, I'm going to tell you, besides the fact that it is, credi- it is incredibly unbiblical, you're going to have a tough time experiencing the compassion of Jesus. And if you can't experience the compassion of Jesus, man, you are missing out on so much stuff. So much stuff. The the thing I love about Jesus is Jesus is so attracted to the most unattractive people in the world. And if you think that that he wouldn't have won anything to do with you, you will not experience him. So the elders were the ones who were praying. Or maybe the people in your home group are praying for you. Or maybe other, your friends at church are praying for you. So do you, do, you, do you blame the people that are doing the praying? Well, the faith healers would never admit that. I mean, that, I mean that's like killing the goose that lays the golden egg. They, they, they could never do, admit that. So what I'm trying to say is that this verse should lead us to pray more boldly because we learned in chapter 1 that God wants us to ask in faith, not doubting in him or his power. Now, let's just say what this definitely not is. I don't get the picture of, of that James has in his mind of a bunch of spiritually dead elders or church leaders coming over to somebody's house anointing them with oil, blah, 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 a couple of prayers, and then going out to lunch. I I think this is a very serious thing that's going on here. In that sense, the church leaders that are going over, the people, even what we talk about next week, when you're praying for people, it's very important to examine our hearts. And I would say, Don't go to either extreme. Don't go to the extreme of doubting in God's power. And don't go to the other extreme of declaring somebody healed. Because you just don't know. What I'm trying to say is there's something in between never expecting God to heal and demanding that he heal when you say so. There has to be something in between. I think it's fair to say that God is looking for us to boldly pray in faith. And again, I'm going to rub some people the wrong way. I don't think we pray boldly very much. I think most of our prayers are resting in God. We're resting in his goodness. We're resting in his love. We're resting in who he is. But I don't think there's too much bold praying like, God, I know you can do this. I know you can do this. I remember last year, someone in our church was very sick. And, and I, I, they went into the ambulance and their husband went with them. And I got in my car and I was like, oh, come on. Come on. I know you can do this. I know you can do this. 
I am, I, am, I am begging you, I am boldly begging you in Jesus' name to heal this person. Some Bible scholars believe that there's going to be certain times in our lives when a gift of faith or gift of knowledge is given to us in a moment. And although it's difficult to always prove biblically, there's a convincing aspect to that. In any case, we need to be more alert in our prayers that God may be giving us a gift of faith. I mean, we should be more alert anyway, but it's quite possible. Let me give you two very old examples when I really sensed this happened to me. When we first came up here, when Pam and I first came up here, I remember we started the church with, uh, there was seven of us, Five of us had five of them had my last name. And and so we got a call from my home church down in central Jersey that there was someone uh, in the in the hospital in Patterson that needed a hospital visit. And and we had just started and we didn't know what we were doing. So, you know, we went there. I'd been on staff at a church, so I'd done plenty of hospital visits. And and we went there and it was a little girl who was sick. And her parents were so distraught. And oh my gosh, we were, we were looking at each other. And, and we were just like, oh man. And so we were there with them. And they said whatever she had, I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. And, and, and she, they had these numbers that, that whatever number she had was so high. And the doctors were saying, figure on about a six-month stay. So we anointed that little girl with oil and we all laid hands on her and we prayed. We prayed. And I had this overwhelming sensation. And I'd love to say it happened to me many, many times, but it hasn't. I had this overwhelming sensation that God was going to heal her. I didn't tell anyone. The next day, I called the father. And he said, oh, Pastor Jim, I was just about to call you. We're home. And I said, what? And he said, they took her readings and they couldn't believe how they had come down. And so they thought it was a lab error, so they did it again, and they came down. God healed my little girl. A few years later, there was a woman who visited our church, and she was pregnant. And Someone had brought her because she was determined to have an abortion. And so she heard the service. She heard the sermon. I don't know what the message was about. And, and she came up and we talked with her after service. 
And we just loved on that woman. And we prayed. I mean, man, we prayed. I didn't even know who she was. But I had this overwhelming sense, like I could see that little baby being born. And about two years later, two and a half years later, I got a letter in the mail. I said, Pastor Jim, thank you for praying for me for that day. I just wanted to send you a picture of my beautiful little girl. And that picture is up on my bulletin board in my office. So I never, ever forget that we can pray the prayer of faith and we never, ever should doubt that God has the ability to move mountains. Friend, if he saved your soul, (laughs) what could be more of a miracle than that? So if God healed on the basis of faith, why did the Apostle Paul ask God to heal him and God didn't heal him? Why were many healed through the Apostle Paul's ministry and yet he couldn't heal his own friends? I think it lies in the fact that healing is a gift, not a reward. Healing is grace. It's not something that God owes us. True, it's, Jesus said to some people, your faith has made you well, but also he healed unbelieving people. It is a gift. Verse 15 ends, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That will take us into verse 16 next week. But don't miss the word if. Now, I said earlier, sickness is the result of sin coming into the world. But not all of your sickness is the result of sins you have committed. Sometimes, yes. This is, this is for some people serves, it's not so much anymore. People don't really talk about sin like they used to years ago. But there used to be these people, I used to call them the secret sin police. This is not a validation of the secret sin police. The idea here seems to be the sinner would know the reason. The sinner would know what they did to get sick. In Job's case, remember we talked about Job. Job's case, it was a test of faith, not the result of sin. Other times, sickness is the result of sin. Sometimes, and I know this is so incredibly odd, sickness is the grace of God. You're like, you're, come on now. For example, a guilty conscience can make you very, very sick make you very sick. And, and sometimes God will use a guilty conscience and sickness to get you to come clean with him. Other times, being bedridden provides for you and for me a time of reflection, a time of confession, a time for the forgiveness of sins, of being restored to God, being reconciled to God. Once again, next week we'll look at this, including how we can help one another with this as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I want to close with one passage. John chapter 5, verse 16 to 23. Jesus has been up to it again. Jesus has been healing on the Sabbath. The religious leaders hated him for this. They considered Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, to be a work. It says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, God doesn't take Sabbath off. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal to God. People say, Jesus never said he was God. Religious leaders disagreed. They completely disagreed, making himself equal with God. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19 is so intriguing to me. Then Jesus answered and said to them, now this is Jesus speaking, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. That is so interesting to me. So Jesus is walking around. All these people are thronging him, asking for healing. And Jesus is saying, I do what I see the Father doing. Father healing those people? I'm going to heal those people. Father not healing those people? I'm not going to heal those people. Father healing that particular person? I'm going to heal that person. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so even the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if people say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Not possible. Jesus says, not possible. So when it comes to healing, to be honest, personally, I am open but cautious. But that's not how I characterize myself. I characterize myself as open and confident. I believe that God heals, and I'm confident that he can. Why would I, you, I believe that? Because I believe there is a relationship, and the scripture bears it out, between the sovereign will of God and our faithful prayers that is, are in the power of God. God. So God has his sovereign will, and we pray believing that he has the power to heal. Bold prayer recognizes a dependency on the will of God, not how strong our faith is. Bold prayer prays in faith. It just doesn't mean loud. It prays in faith, in the will of God, in what our Heavenly Father wants to do for our good and His glory. So the Bible teaches us to ask in Jesus' name. That assumes 
what we just read, that prayer and God's will meet. And when prayer and God's will meet, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer for healing will bring healing when it is God's will to give the gift of healing. It's his gift to give. Should we still ask? Of course. Of course. Those of you who have kids, how many presents do they ask for for Christmas? <laughs> That's why I used to tell my wife, turn off the television at Christmas time because everything that comes out, I want, I want that for Christmas. I want that for Christmas. I want that. Listen, we, we ask God for a lot of things and God is okay with that. True faithful prayer is committed to the will of God and waiting on what that will is, believing the Lord can do anything. Some people will say, I can't trust like that. Let me ask you this question, loved one. Do you think you know better than God? Don't you want heaven's best for you and for those that you love? And maybe, just maybe, healing is not the best thing. Maybe, maybe there's a reason why God's like, yeah, I, I, I get it. I know you keep asking me, and I want you to keep asking me. I love hearing from you. But someday I will explain it to you, if you even care when you're in heaven. Maybe someday you'll know and you'll be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Just once again, John 5, 21, Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even the Son of God gives life to whom he will. Let's just forget about earthly healing for a minute or maybe for the rest of the night. How is one healed, forgiven, and saved eternally? How does one rise from the dead in a resurrected body that is perfect, that will never be sick again? Well, Jesus said it right here. He said, the Son gives life to whom he will. And on this subject, as complex as physical healing is, on this subject of Jesus giving life, and life is, when Jesus talks about life in the scriptures, he's talking about eternal life. That teaching is not complex in the least. Jesus said this, repent and believe. Repent. Turn from your sinful ways. Turn to God. Admit that you're a sinner. Ask for his forgiveness and believe trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. See him dying on the cross, knowing that he died in your place for your sins. In the last verse of this letter, James teaches us that will save the soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's for you. And you can put your trust in Jesus tonight 
And you can know that if you're praying for something, he will hear you. And if you're sick, I want to pray for you right now. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to anoint you where you are. Well, let's pray.